So this Dharma talk is the third in a series of three. It's based, this series of Dharma talks is based on this book, which I highly recommend, Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. And so I'll, I've given a plug for the past couple of weeks, but I'll give another plug for this book. She, um, most of the book she goes through and identifies several emotions, including emotions that are often confused in everyday life and gives very clear distinctions between how this emotion differs from that emotion. She covers over a hundred emotions. Um, I found that part very valuable, but then even more valuable at the end, she has her, her theory of cultivating meaningful relationships. And she talks about that in terms of three buckets of skills grounded confidence, the courage to walk alongside, and story stewardship. And so I've been talking about these three over the past few weeks. Two weeks ago, I talked about grounded confidence. Last week, I talked about the courage to walk alongside. And today, I'm going to talk about story stewardship. And when I first heard this, you know, the grounded confidence and, and the courage to walk alongside, they were intuitive why those would be important for um, for meaningful relationship. And I was a little intrigued, almost puzzled initially. Story stewardship, what is that? But the, the more I thought about it, the more I realized intimacy happens many times through stories. You know, um... You know, we all have some public stories that are, you know, factual and very easy to share. You know, I grew up in this place and I have this kind of job, that sort of thing. But many of our stories are vulnerable and we only share them with the people that are closest to us. And there's a certain amount of trust that's involved in sharing our story with someone, you know. So story stewardship in a way is being, as it were, a trustworthy receiver of somebody else's stories. So the first thing I'll say is, of course, being being a trustworthy receiver of stories means listening. And um, listening is a real art. Attention is a real art. You know, I often say we live in a time where there's a tremendous poverty of attention. You know, we have, we have um, multi-billion dollar industries that commodify attention and try and buy it up. Um, in these conditions of scarcity, really, for many people, the concern is just the, the simple binary. Is someone paying attention or not? You know? And we neglect more the quality of attention. What would it mean to be a connoisseur of attention? And similarly, what would it mean to be a connoisseur of listening abilities? You know? So part of what it means to be an excellent listener is, first of all, to be in a relatively quiet place internally. You know, if I, if I have lots of chatter and argument within me, I'm not going to be a very sensitive listener. Um... It's about listening 
listening and taking in not only the words, but but all the nonverbal communication, the the tone of voice, the facial expression, the body, um, and taking this in not not only with the mind, really feeling into all of this, feeling into what does the tone say, what does the face say, um, being a good listener has a lot to do with vulnerability, with vulnerability as a, as a kind of capacity of knowing others, um, a capacity ultimately to attune to others. And ultimately, it's, I think it's really about extending a kind of invitation in one's own being, not, not even so much a spoken invitation, but an energetic invitation, you know, you are free to tell your story as you wish, you know, and I'm going to honor the story that you share. And part of, part of this deep listening is attuning to people's emotions. And I want to read a quote from Brene Brown that, that was really striking to me. This is from her book. She said, I no longer believe that we can recognize emotion in other people, regardless of how well we understand human emotion and experience or how much language we have. So how do we know what other people are feeling? We ask them. And it really struck me. And I... In some ways, I agree with her that there's no fail-safe way that, you know, I could get to a certain place and I would just be able to read everyone's emotions. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Um, but I think often when there's emotional intimacy in a deep friendship or in a partnership, we have a little more of a sense of of the patterns of emotion. And we may be surprised sometime, you know, but um, we have a little more of a sense And I think also people who are more energetically sensitive, and I don't consider myself tremendously energetically sensitive, but I think people who are more energetically sensitive um, have more an in that the rest of us don't have. I think of some of the most amazing healers I've ever met, and they, they always seem to know, you know, what other people are feeling. But I think her point is well taken that really... Intimacy involves listening how other people are feeling, you know. Some, many times we don't know. And so I was thinking about our stories also. It's, it's interesting. We have, you know, first of all, just our, our kind of whole life story, you know. My, my childhood and, you know, all that and how that leads to who I am now. There's more the immediate milieu kind of, you know, the job I have, where I currently live, you know, what all that means. And then there's also stories that are particularly immediate, you know, that thing that happened to me yesterday, you know, that wonderful thing or that horrible thing that happened to me yesterday. And with all of these stories, there are aspects that are purely factual, that are not vulnerable at all. You know, I could 
I could share with anybody where I grew up or what I, what I do for a living or something like that. Um, but with all of these stories, there are deeply vulnerable aspects also. And again, we would only be sharing those with someone with whom, whom we trusted. And so one of the one of the phrases that she uses that Brene Brown uses is is rumbling with the story. You know, following the the adventure of the story where it goes. And I think of this very much as um I think I would phrase this more as extending a very open-hearted invitation to the story. You know, just allowing more and more of the story. And I think we do that not only by listening, but even by encouraging, you know, tell me more about that, or how did that feel, or, you know, just asking further open-ended questions to unfold the story more. Um, she also talks about building narrative trust. And it's funny, part of narrative trust is being an excellent listener in the moment. But part of narrative trust also is remembering, you know, and and I think really paying attention deeply lends itself to remembering. Um, You know, it often can be very touching for someone if we remember something that, that they've told us previously about their story, you know, and especially if we're able to make a connection, you know, oh, I can understand why that thing yesterday was upsetting to you because you told me about X that happened 10 years ago, that sort of thing. And I think part of narrative trust is also, um, how can I say, reflecting a person's story back to them in a way that helps them see their strengths in a way that lifts them up or gives them courage or support, you know. I mean, certainly there's there's vicious ways to reflect somebody's story in a way that's belittling or something like that, and sometimes that happens in, in acrimonious breakups. Um, but, you know, what is what is the most generous and magnanimous way in which I can reflect this person's story back to them? You know, I think that builds a a tremendous amount of trust. So, so far I've talked about the stories that are, you might say, a little more fixed. You know, the story of my life, the, the story of my surroundings, you know, or, you know, the thing that happened yesterday and that's just a, a fixed event. Um... A lot of times when we grow, when we go through transformation, our story changes. And often it's a particularly vulnerable thing at first when I'm first trying to articulate the new phase of life where, you know, maybe I only have one foot in and one foot out, that kind of thing, you know, and I'm really trying to articulate that new phase. Um... And that can be a time that is just magical in a trusted relationship for somebody else to, to first of all, simply to witness this new story coming first, coming forth, um, and maybe even to draw it out with their own insights, 
you know. You know, I, I, when I listen to you, I hear that you're moving in such and such direction, you know, that sort of thing. And so there's, there's something, um, you might say a tremendous privilege of hearing, hearing this, the new story that someone is sharing as they're, as they're going through a threshold of growth, you know. And at first that's a very intimate story. It may be much later when that becomes something assimilated and all that, then it's something they can share in a public way, in a confident way, you know, but it, it has to go through that phase of being, you know, you know, I think of a frost line, nature's first green is gold, that kind of edge of vulnerability that accompanies it. And I think it just, it also takes tremendous, uh, not only curiosity, but tremendous um, willingness to suspend one's own beliefs to see that edge of growth in somebody else. You know, we, we get so, we're such creatures of habit and, you know, well, this person's like that, you know, and, and especially we fall into any kind of taking for granted pattern, then we're not listening carefully, you know. Um, and really it's a, it's such a profound, um, it's a profound gift to, to catch that edge of what's different or what's new as that person is stepping into something new, you know. Now the flip side of that, of course is that sometimes I go through growth and I have a story and at first it's fresh and new and authentic, but then I get stuck in that story. And a few years later, I'm still telling that story and that story isn't really the truth of where I am anymore. You know, I, I outgrow that story, you know? And I think this is another kind of service. And again, it, it requires tremendous narrative trust, tremendous rapport, that, that ability to hang a question mark over somebody's older story, you know? Does that still serve you? You know, and it's really a question, ideally, we're always asking ourselves. Does my story still serve me, you know? It's a question we ought to be asking ourselves, but, you know, it's just human nature that, you know, the story that is most not serving me is probably the one that I'm least likely to ask that question about, you know? And so it, it's actually very helpful to have somebody else say, you know, just just ask that and to push against that a little bit. And what, you know, what what might be a newer truth underneath that that now very familiar story? I think I would say that some of the greatest offerings we have to give in life are the stories of transformations that we've been through, the stories of growth and healing that we've been through. Um, And I think of it as one of these sort of, these beautiful interchanges of the deeply personal and the the public. Um, 
I talked last week about compassion and that there's there's sort of one set of, you might say, compassion skills that have to do with universal compassion, being compassionate for the whole world, for everyone I meet on the street, that sort of thing. And it's a very different set of compassion skills for compassion for the person I live with every day and I'm being emotionally intimate with every day, you know? And so it's, you know, and there's this interplay, you know, the more I learn compassion in that very intimate one-on-one relationship, the more compassion I have to share with the world, you know? And much in the same way, I think the, the emergence of our cutting-edge stories that's something that is also nurtured in intimacy. It's nurtured in the place of intimacy. But then as we grow strength with those stories, those are gifts we share with the world. And so there, it's this powerful way that intimacy only, almost becomes like the, the, the laboratory or the petri dish to develop something that then moves out to, to extend to much larger benefit. So I'll share the quote sheet. Share it with the the Zoomies first. And a quote sheet for the roomie. So at the top I have the the three parts of Brene Brown's theory of cultivating meaningful connection and the elements of story stewardship, rumbling with the story and building narrative trust. And then the the quote that I read earlier. Helen Luke said, inner story, though the same in essence for all, is always singular and unique in each human being, never before lived and never to be repeated. The author Madeline Lingle said, Our story is never written in isolation. We do not act in a one-man play. We can do nothing that does not affect other people, no matter how loudly we say, it's my own business. (laughs) Maya Angelou said, there's no agony like bearing an untold story inside of you. That one is just powerful, you know. What are the untold stories we have inside of us? You know, Anthony DeMello said, you have yet to understand, my friends, that the shortest distance between a human being and truth is a story. And it's funny, so many of the, the great teachers have taught in stories, you know, both both in the East and in the West. The poet Wendell Barry said, In the effort to tell a whole story, to see it whole and clear, I have had to imagine more than I have known. Byron Katie says quite simply, reality is always kinder than the stories we tell about it. Gildna Radner, who was taken from us too young, said, I wanted a perfect ending. Now I've learned the hard way that some poems don't rhyme and some stories don't have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Life is about not knowing, having to change, taking the moment and making the best of it without knowing what's going to happen next. 
delicious ambiguity. Now, that one spoke to me very much about the just rumbling with the story and just the, the vulnerability of the, the not knowing. Julian Barnes said, how often do we tell our own, our own life story? How often do we adjust, embellish, make sly cuts? And the longer life goes on, the fewer those are those around to challenge our account, to remind us that our life is not our life, merely the story we have told about our lives, told to others, but mainly to ourselves. You know, and I think, I think that one is valuable and it points in some ways to the, you know, almost a self-indulgent terror t- tendency or a self-aggrandizing tendency in how I frame my own story, you know, and I, I think, uh, you know, part of, part of what happens in narrative trust is someone keeps us honest, someone keeps us humble, you know. From David White. I often think we're a good six to seven years behind the frontier that we've actually physically aged and matured into. And that is one of the great disciplines of existence, just to stay up with the frontier of your own maturation, to have said goodbye to what you need to say goodbye to, and to be saying hello to what you should be saying hello to. But caught in the enmeshments of the strategic mind, which coalesces around its false stories and holds on to them, Quite often, we're a good six to seven years behind where we actually are. Malcolm Gladwell said, We have, as human beings, a storytelling problem. We're a bit too quick to come up with explanations for things we really don't have an explanation for. And that's a a wonderful meditation on, you know, explanations we have for people in our own lives. Barbara Kingsolver said, To live is to be marked. To live is to change, to acquire the words of a story, and that is the only celebration we mortals really know. Brene Brown said, Owning our own story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experiences that make us most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. Race Mamenikin said quite simply, Trauma is also a wordless story our body tells about what is safe and what is a threat. Daphne Rose Kingma said, If you have trouble loving yourself, imagine that everyone in the world is a hungry soul whose life has been imperfect. Like you, they had imperfect parents. Like you, tragedies and difficulties befell them. If you could hear each person's story, you would probably be moved to tears and want to reach out and embrace that person. You would want to tell them that in spite of everything they've gone through, they have great value. Philip Pullman said, after nourishment, shelter, and companionship, stories are the things we need most in the world. Neil Gaiman said, stories you read when you're the right age never quite leave you. You may forget who wrote them or what the story was called. Sometimes you'll forget precisely what happened, but if a story touches you, it will stay with you, haunting the places in your mind that you rarely ever visit. 
Terry Pratchett said, People think that stories are shaped by people. In fact, it's the other way around. Kyo McClear said, There are moments when what we need, what will benefit us most, is the power to style our own stories. And Micaiah Johnson said, We all have a story, and through sharing our very own, we can change the world.